Our first Easter ever at Fondra Church was in 2012. We were jammed in one service in Dueling Hall. And I remember the day, I remember the, the week after, just some conversations very specifically. I remember someone uh, said to me, they said, hey, preacher, do you know who was at church today? So-and-so was at church. And that guy just got out of jail for a serious crime. And I looked at them and said, but Jesus forgives. Another person said to me, you know, hey, did you know who was here? At, you know, it was at Easter service. Uh, this person just left their family, been cheating scoundrel, walked out on his family. I said, but hey, God forgives. God is good. And God, God reconciles and redeems. A, a guy said to me, hey, did you see who was at church on Easter Sunday? So-and-so, she's a stripper. And I said, how do you know she was a stripper? <laughs> Easter is for everybody. Can I get an amen, church? Easter is for everybody. Uh, years ago, when I was a young man, I lived a couple of summers in Europe in a place called Yugoslavia. Anybody heard of Yugoslavia? You got to be like older than 50. It's no longer a nation. It's uh, divided into two. In fact, when we were there, it was the beginning of their ethnic strife and, and division, the uh, Serbia and Croatia. But um, beautiful land and wonderful people. And one of our friends, he loved Americans and moved over here. He moved to Gainesville, Florida to do doctoral work at the University of Florida. I loved his English. I loved how he learned, and we would uh, pick at him a lot of things he would say. And when he would greet people, he would, like he calls you on the phone or walks past somebody, he would go, greetings, greetings. And I'm like, you know, I had the gumption to tell him one day, I'm like, dude, nobody says that. Like, you know, it's good to greet, but don't say greetings. You got to say something else. Um, So he uh, picked up the slang. He he would say, what's shaking? That was his favorite thing, what's shaking? So I hear from him today, he's like, man, what's what's shaking? And um, I looked up doing uh, research for today's sermon, the top four greetings that we give each other with the what's, when we start with what's. And it's what's up, what's going on, what's happening. Anybody would guess the fourth, rounding out the top four. What's, what's up, what's happening, what's going on. Here we go. What's new? What's new? Y'all ever ask that? Hey, what, what's new? And it's really common, right, to ask each other uh, this question, what's new and isn't it good don't you doesn't it feel good when someone asks you what's new and you have something exciting to share with them and uh this week um i decided that i wanted to get a puppy another dog for our, our house and susan told me defiantly she pointed her finger at me in the back of the church parking lot in front of witnesses and she said we are not getting a puppy and so later that day when the man brought the puppy to our house and <laughs> and we kept him for four days uh right yeah when we greet each other, so when people ask me this week, what's new? Somebody did ask me. I'm like, well, marriage is a little rocky on Easter week. In fact, you can pray for my marriage. That's what's new. But uh, it's good when someone says what's new and you've got something really exciting to, to share. We didn't get to keep the dog, uh, so that's the latest news. But when you have something good to share, this week we have three couples, three couples in our church that are about to have their third baby. Josh and Mariah Carver are going in tonight to have their baby at tonight or tomorrow. Austin and Lauren Brown were in the second service. We have a few OBGYNs in church today, I'm glad. Uh, they're going to have theirs uh, middle of the week, and then Tyler and Jordan Walker are about to have their baby. If you ask the Carvers, the Walkers, and the Jordans this week what's new, they're going to either hug you or hit you. But what's new for them will be probably schedules and diapers and deprivation of sleep and chaos What's new, Carvers and Walkers and Browns? Um, when you ask a bored person, someone who's bored or cynical, you say what's new, it's common, especially Southern folks, to say, oh, same old, same old. You ever done that? What's new? Same old, same old. 
you know, that's not new. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and verse 9. Solomon would write this so long ago. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. What's new, Solomon? Same old, same old. A couple thousand years ago, if you asked 12 men who were predominantly fishermen and tax collectors, you say, what's new? They would say, nothing, same old, same old. Until one day, out of nowhere, they encountered a man named Jesus. And Jesus said, stop what you're doing and follow me. And for several years, every day and every single way, when anyone would ask them what's new, they would say, Jesus is what's new. Jesus did this. Jesus did that. Jesus touched the lepers. You're not supposed to touch lepers. Jesus healed the blind man. Nobody could do that. Jesus cleared out the temple. Jesus cursed the fig tree. Jesus calmed the storm. Jesus walked on water. Hey, what's new, disciples? Jesus is new. Let me tell you about Jesus. And then on a Friday, guys, what's new? He died. It was awful. And it's over. Saturday. Guys, what's new? Nothing. Sunday. What's new? Everything. The tomb is empty. Jesus has risen. Death has been defeated. Sin has been forgiven. Hope wins. Hell loses. What's new? Everything. And can I say on Easter Sunday... A God is in the business of doing new things. And we won't get a show of hands, just kind of raise the hand in your heart. But who needs to see God do something new today? Who's tired of the old and who's tired of the same patterns? And who's, being, uh, who, who's struggling to lay aside the sin that's so easily besetting you? Who's walking through something that you were walking through this time next year? Who's plagued with the same stuff? Who has the same level of hopelessness or despair? God is a big fan of doing new things, and it's all up in this book from beginning to end. Ezekiel 36, 26 says, I'll give you a new heart. That heart of stone, I will, I'll remove that. I'll replace it with a heart of flesh. I'll give you a new spirit. Ezekiel uh, eleven 19, I'll put a new spirit in you. Ephesians 4, 23, he gives us a new mind. You will be renewed with the attitude of your new mind. Isaiah 43, he does new things. Forget former things of old. I'm doing a new thing. 1 Peter 1, 3 says, we have a new birth into a living hope. Colossians 3, 9 says, quit lying to one another. Walk, put aside the old man, your old self, and walk in your new self, which is being renewed, uh, being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. You too would write a song from the 40th Psalm in our Bible. Uh, he, the Psalm says there that God has given me a new song. A new song of praise is in my mouth. Isaiah 65, 17 would portend to Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4, where God says through the prophet and through John, the old disciple exiled on the island of Patmos, they would both say that God is creating a new heaven and a new earth. So let's just recap on Easter Sunday. God gives a new heart and a new spirit and a new mind. He, he does a new thing with a new self. It gives a new song for a new heaven and a new earth. And so I want to ask you uh, today if you'd be open to the new work that God would want to do in you. This probably ain't your first Easter, is it? But maybe God would want to do something this Easter that's new in you. So look, let's look this morning at when it was brand 
new. I don't want to be sacrilegious when I say this. You can open to Acts chapter 2. It'd be better today just to look on the screen. We're going to whip through some stuff. In Acts chapter 2, here's the church gathered. What's new? Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Now if you did open your Bible or want to check it out later, you'll see that that he names a lot of these nations, a lot of these places where people have gathered in Jerusalem, where they're from. The Parthenians, and there's, there's people from Rome, from, from Egypt. There are Arabs, there are Libyans, there are people from Mesopotamia. Uh, there are um, uh, Elamites and people from Mede, all these places. I just mentioned a few. The others are harder, harder to pronounce. There's people there from the island of Crete. Anybody ever heard of Crete? In the Bible, in Titus chapter 1, it says they have a reputation. They're known as liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. I love, that's one of my favorite Bible verses, Titus, Titus 1. But uh, there's people from all over the land. And here's what's crazy. It says that when they gathered, and this great fire, and this wind, and this quake came, and the Spirit of God showed up like he'd never showed up before. A new, a new era, a new dispensation. God coveting with his people. And, and it says they were bewildered, and they were there in utter amazement. Another one of my favorite Bible verses says, hey, these, these folks aren't drunk. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. So something was happening if they think you're drunk and you're not drunk. Sometimes y'all just drunk. But they weren't drunk. But they thought they might have been drunk. They were trying to figure it out as people were speaking. And then this common language that God was doing in them. Now look where Peter takes it next. We'll skip down to verse 14 of Acts chapter 2. Then Peter stood up. This is big and bold. He stood up with the 11, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. I read that verse differently just now because at the 8 o'clock my microphone went out for just a minute. And I was thinking, man, they, they had no voice amplification back then. But thousands of people were around them. And Peter stood up. And so he's kind of probably got to yell. But he's yelling or he's letting them know because there's authority. Now, check this out. Here's Peter, who just a few weeks ago was among the disciples. Remember, there's 12. Jesus worked closely with the 12. And then he had the three, Peter, James, and John. He sent out the 70. There were the crowds that he told riddles and parables to. But he was very close to these three. Peter was one of them. And Peter, like the other disciples, when it went down that day, when it went down, he ran and he hid and he denied. The disciples were like scared schoolchildren. They got out of Dodge, and Peter ran, and he hid, and he denied Jesus. He said, he uttered the words that had been prophesied about him, I never knew that man. And just a few weeks later, just a few weeks later, this is Peter. Now, what does that do to you, do for you? Part of me wants to go, hypocrite, like church people are like, uh, you know, hypocrite. How do, you know, he was doing this, look what you're doing. Aren't we like that? We hold people down. We, we, we talk about who you were a few years back. Or, you know, this is what you did last month. This is what you did last summer. This is, this is what you did. This is who you are. But what's new? Here's what's new. A coward developed courage. And he stood up in front of all these people and proclaimed what was true about the risen Savior. If you base your life and the gospel message and the, Easter, the meaning of Easter on how you're doing and how good you are and how gifted you are, that'll be hollow. And I know we, we got some bright minds and sharp people, high achievers in the room, no doubt. But Peter had this boldness because of what Jesus had done. They had breakfast on the beach. Read John 21. They had breakfast on the beach. Jesus said, hey, and get Peter too. Bring Peter. After the resurrection, get Peter. 
And so Peter wasn't standing there, and his boldness wasn't his skilled oratory or his intelligence with the law and the prophets and the fulfillment of it in the person of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. He, he wasn't resting on any of his stuff just a few weeks ago. I mean, I imagine if I was in Peter's shoes and in in his sandals in this moment, I, man, I would be like, how can I get up there? How can I speak with authority when everybody saw me running like a scared child? What's new? The forgiveness of Jesus Christ. When God, when you've run and you've denied and you've hidden and you've sinned, and Jesus says, now listen, there are people, you, some of you have parents, authority figures in your life, or you read some bad books. You're following the wrong social media accounts, and you got people thundering about a God that's never existed. And the Easter message is when you have failed and you're at your worst is when he can be at his best. And he says, hey, let's have breakfast. And so Peter had the authority in, as he stood up among these people. Let's follow it to verse 22 through 24. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to, to you by miracles, wonders and signs which God did among you through him. As you yourselves know, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge and you with the help, look at his boldness here, you with the help of wicked men put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Peter is talking to the mob about the mob. Now these are the very people. This, he's, in the, he's in the same city among the same crowd that helped kill Jesus. And he's standing up saying this. We've been using, the, the, in this previous verse, we've been, uh, in America, we've been using the word mob a lot lately. Well, in my younger days, we used the mob like, you know, it was in movies and stuff. But now it's like the mob, the mob on the Capitol, the mob in San Francisco, the mob in Nashville, the mob in D.C., the insurrection, the, the storming the Capitol. We've been, we've been talking about mobs, and mob, by any definition, is a crowd of people who are angry, who are demanding justice. And Peter stood in front of a mob. I like, I like preaching to a church after we sing a few songs. And Peter's standing before a mob, and he's saying, wicked men. Like, let's get some points for courage. Can, and... and so you with me? So how could he have such courage? Okay, Holy Spirit, Jesus, empty tomb, all that. So it's, here's how he's courageous. It's true. You ever been excited about something that's true? What if you had to stand in front of a mob and you were telling a lie? You going to be confident? How's your, how's your confidence meter going to go? You're going to be able to stand up there? But Peter was sharing something that's true. And here's what I'm going to tell you about all the disciples. This wasn't a metaphor for them. This wasn't an allegory. This, they, didn't have, they didn't operate with a vague sense of emotional, mystical feelings about the gospel. To them, this didn't emanate from wonderful teachings or a philosophy of life or wishful thinking. For them, this was a historic point of record, a, a fact, something that happened that they experienced. And so, therefore... They had this confidence and they had seen what it had done and were seeing the works of their Savior and dreaming about what could be. And so they stood there with all the confidence in the world. I challenge people every chance I get when it comes to Easter. I don't include this in all my Easter sermons, but I have a couple of times. Think about Easter with, on two, two fronts. Number one, the historical evidence. And number two, your personal experience. And when it comes to the historical evidence, can I just say we have a misnomer in our minds 
that, oh, this is primitive. This was 2,000 years ago. And they didn't have good record keeping. And they, you know, it'd be easy to tell a lie and perpetuate that lie back then. You couldn't do that today. And here's what I want you to know. History tells us that at the time of Jesus, there were 50 other holy men serving different gods, had different philosophies and teaching. They were holy men in Jerusalem, in or around Jerusalem, and they had gravesides. And they had what they called in Jewish tradition veneration services where people would come after these men had died and they would stand at their grave and they would venerate this leader. They would remember him. Can I tell you, there were no veneration services around the grave for Jesus. The first century, I mean, they went to the tomb, found it was empty. They ran from the tomb. They didn't go, like we go and visit. We pay thousands of dollars to go to the Holy Land. I think you should go. It's awesome. But they didn't do, they celebrated, they remembered the Lord through baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism and the Lord, they remembered because the, the tomb was empty. And these, here's my, here's my point. The tomb was guarded. These tombs were honored. They were controlled. They were monitored. No, they didn't have surveillance cameras uh, like we have. But they were monitored closely. And this was not the time or the place. Plus, think about the religious, the Jewish establishment. In our day, we're loosey-goosey when it comes to our faith. We're just a loose confederation of people who come in and out of our church buildings from time to time. But the Jewish tradition was a staunch one. They, they were very, very rigid. And they, they had a vested interest to disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The dis- stories that the disciples were telling, it upset their conventional categories. It upset them on a religious standpoint. It violated the social, economic, and political power that they had. And religion. They have every reason in the world. And Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, 6, is saying, hey, Jesus appeared to these, and he appeared to the women, to the 12. He appeared to more than 500 witnesses. That ain't how you tell a lie. And I know conspiracy theories are funny, you know, fun to, to engage in, Da Vinci Code, if you read it or saw the movie and the swoon theory and different stuff like that. But this conspiracy theory, all conspiracy theories about the resurrection crumble like an old cookie when you start looking at them. And this is a matter of historical record. In college, I was involved in a group called Campus Crusade for Christ. Campus, they call it crew now, less militant, I guess. But uh, we, uh, we hosted the showing of the Jesus film. And one particular night, a lot of students from the international dorm, it was segregated in a lot of ways back then, but the students came. It was a, there was a young man doing his doctoral work, a, a man named Guna from Malaysia. That wasn't his full name. None of us could say his full name. But we just called him Guna. And he was from the nation of Malaysia. He was Muslim. He came to the full showing of the Jesus film, and we followed him up. I'd never done anything like this in my young life. I followed up with him, and I had a staff director who was discipling me at the time. And we gave him a book written by Josh McDowell called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Anybody remember this? And Evidence That Demands a Verdict, if we have any educators in here, it's not the book you read. Uh, uh, you know, some books aren't meant to be, to be read. They're like reference points or something. It's dense and lots of logic and history and back and forth. It's, uh, anyway, Guna, uh, we met back with him a week later. and He goes, I read the book. I'm like, like that little pamphlet we gave you, the four spirit? Like, no, 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 I, like, I read the book. Like evidence and demands. He read the book and right then and there in the student union, he accepted Jesus Christ as his Savior and Lord. And let me tell you, when I accepted Christ as my Savior and Lord, my family celebrated. Like, they cried and we hugged and high-fived. There's my mom on the front row. Like, my mom, like, picked me up and carried me around the house. We did a mosh pit pit and uh, played, uh, you know, 80s rock. And we just, we just had a big time when I accepted Jesus. But Guna's family, you know what they did? They cut him off. But Guna was so convinced about the evidence that demanded a verdict in his life. 
So continue with the story, because from the historical evidence, I want to talk to you about the personal experience. Here's what Peter, here's what it would say in Acts 2, 36 or 7. 7. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. One of my favorite expressions. And said to Peter and the other apostles, Brother, what shall we do? Pastors, preachers have dreams about church being like this. We preach and you get cut to the heart. and You run to the front and say, what must we do to be saved? Nobody's laughing. But anyway, that's just a pastor dream that, that we have. That's my world. But um, the goal of preaching, number one, is to keep you awake for about 35 minutes on Sunday morning. But there's something way deeper than that. That there's a book that we read from that's inspired and infallible. That it's perfect and it corrects us and trains us in righteousness and it gives us the wisdom that leads us to salvation and to growth and we preach from this book and when the spirit's power we hope and pray that one or two or ten or a hundred or a thousand get cut to the heart have you been cut to the heart when you get cut to the heart it's when you're at a place when it penetrates deep and you're beyond the surface level and you know we most of us look really good today we're wearing stuff and Daniel made a joke about how we didn't coordinate our outfits and we're doing different weddings on the beach. And that's his way of dropping a hint that we are available to do your weddings at the beach. Uh, Daniel's real busy. I'm available for the next year or two if you have a beach, beach wedding. But uh, we, it's easy for us to, to look good on the surface. But when something's cut to the heart, it ain't the suit you're wearing. It's what's happening here. And you and I know, man, we, we play games Our happiness can be a mirage in the desert, and it's easy to project and to pretend. But this is a moment in the history of the church, in the history of the world. By the way, here's what's unique about Christianity. It had a starting point. It had a time and a place, and there was an event, and this is the event that we mark today. There was no Christianity. Boom, Christianity. And these people, by the thousands, get cut to the heart. Consider historian, a noted, credible historian named Tom Holland. Here's what he once said. The notion that a God might have suffered torture and death on a cross was so shocking as to appear repulsive. Familiarity with the narrative of the crucifixion has dulled our sense of just how completely novel a deity Christ was. In the ancient world, it was the role of gods who laid claim to ruling the universe to uphold its order by inflicting punishment. Not to suffer it themselves. If you make up stories about God as the Greeks and Romans did and everybody before them, and we do it in our day. They thunder. They rule the universe and they inflict punishment and don't get out of line. Never, ever, ever before has a life been so revolutionary and unique that he said, I will take this infliction on me. Notice the last line. Not to suffer it themselves. That word suffer intersects with every life, doesn't it? I mentioned at the 8 o'clock service, not the last one, but at 8 o'clock I mentioned that there is a preacher at a Presbyterian church in Nashville, and he's got my job today. And year after year, with every kid I ever had, if I dropped them off at school or their mother did or they drove their own, so every single day they came home. And there's a man doing my job today, standing in front of a ton of people at a Presbyterian church in Nashville, and he had four. And today he has three in his church, but he's preaching the gospel. He's standing in front of people and he's talking about the peace and the grace of God. Suffering and our need for forgiveness intersects every world. For years I've laughed at and appreciated the comedy and acting of Jim Carrey. The last few years I thought this guy's going mad. 
with his art and his quotations. But just last week, I heard him say, this is a guy who had nothing, who lived in his car, who had nothing, and was dreaming about making people laugh through his comedy. He made millions and millions and millions, and then found out that that millions that he made wasn't satisfying him. And notice what he just, look, take a look at what he just said just a couple of weeks ago. I've had some challenges in the last couple of years myself. Uh, and uh, ultimately, I believe that suffering leads to salvation. Uh, we have to somehow accept, not deny, but feel our suffering. And then we make one of two decisions. We either decide to go through the gate of resentment, which leads to vengeance, which leads to self-harm, which leads to harm to others, or we go through the gate of forgiveness, which leads to grace. Just as Christ did on the cross, he suffered terribly, and he was broken by it. To look upon the people who were causing that suffering, or the situation that was causing that suffering, with compassion and with forgiveness. And that's what opens the gates of heaven for all of us. Mm. Hollywood puts out love stories, don't they? And we benefit from them. We read our Harlequin romances. They still make those. They still write those. We go to the Hollywood movies and love story after love story. And we're drawn to those acts of love. But there's no love story like the love story of Easter. A God who could have inflicted anger and wrath and ruled the universe in that way. Chose to send his son and that son looked at the mob. With love. And so today, just a quick little commercial in Easter. Let me get in your space a little bit. If you're here today and you've chosen resentment and bitterness as your path because you've suffered, because people inflicted suffering and the world that you're living in is hard and it is, is it working for you? Is it bringing you life? Does it make you want to dress up and file into a building and gather with other people and sing songs of praise? Or is it constricting your world and making it dark and smaller? I don't know where he's heading in life, but it seems like he's been cut to the heart with the the message that can change everything. And so lastly, Acts 2, 38. This final passage says this. Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and when you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. A friend of mine says... That verse says, repent and be Baptist. (laughs) But y'all know, y'all know we're non-denominational. So there there we are. Baptism is the first step. If you've been cut to the heart, if you've received Jesus, listen to me. Baptism is the first step. So many of us put it off. and So we're not here, it's not a statement of judgment. Not going to embarrass you. We want to walk with you. We want to say, hey, let's, let's do this. If you've received Jesus Christ and you have never been baptized by immersion after conversion, can, can, can you do it here? Would, would, you, would you take a step of faith? Or if you have a home church, another church, would you do it there? Would you take this step? Because it's the first thing that Jesus wants you to do. But so many of us put it off. I know some people, they're men, and they're friends of mine. And they say, man, Robert, I, I believe. I'm a believer. But I, I, my faith is private. And I don't want to identify with Christ. I'm, you know, it's another way of saying I'm scared of the water. 
and the public testimony. But imagine if 27 years ago I would have told Susan and Marion, I'm committed to you. I want to love you and I, I do love you and I want to marry you. And, but I don't want to wear a ring and go to a ceremony and have a bunch of people show up and have cake and flowers and a DJ later and have all this. I, mean, I don't want to do that. Honestly, that would be embarrassing. That would embarrass me. Well, what would the result? If I would have said that to her 27 years ago, there would be three fewer children in this world today. Trust me. But when you love somebody, what do you do? You identify with them. There's a lot being written, a lot being argued about. A lot of us like popping veins in our neck, arguing about identities and people's different identities and everything like that. Listen to me, for everybody, the identity that matters is being identified with Jesus Christ and everything else. And if you don't have that as your identity, you're going to go to those gods, no matter what they are. No matter what they are. Some of y'all think I'm... I'm just saying, you'll go to anything and everything if your identity isn't in Jesus Christ. And so that's what we have. And here's what I'd say as Lauren and the team begin uh, making their way up. There is one Thomas Merton quote from No Man is an Island. I want to show you if we can do that, Emmy. A man who is not at peace with himself projects his interior fighting into the society of those he lives with and spreads a contagion of conflict all around him. The cross and the empty tomb and the person of Jesus who laid it all down for us. When you... When your heart has been cut and you identify with him, what you're going to find in the midst of tons of turmoil is a peace. It's a peace that can be real even in the middle of trouble. Remember John 6, 16, Athletes put it in ink under their eyes when they were allowed to do that. I don't think they can do that anymore. But um, in this world, you have trouble. My, my, my peace has overcome this world. And there's a peace. And if you don't have it today, listen, it don't matter how good, good looking you are today on Easter Sunday. It don't matter where you're going, if you're going to the country club or Piccadilly's for lunch after this. Like if you don't have this inner peace, you know it. And the, here's what doesn't work, self-management, where you try to just sweep it under the rug. And Thomas Merton is right in No Man is an Island. If you don't have that peace within you, you'll inflict that pain on other people into the society, your family, and who you live with. And it spreads a contagion all around you. And Easter is a message. That Jesus provides peace. He brings forgiveness. Retribution and bitterness and anger and malice and greed and wrath and selfishness and ego. None of those things are worth you giving yourself to. And all of them will bankrupt you. So I want you to stand with me today. And I want to pray over you. And my prayer for you today is that if you're willing and if God has cut you to the heart in some way that you would have a personal experience of Easter and when someone asks you what's new you will be able to tell them what Jesus is doing for you Father thanks for Easter for this day we want to offer this song up to you a song of praise I pray that we would lift our voices and Lord, for anybody that's given up on change, there's a, too many people who cynically say, people don't change. But the gospel message is that we do. That we can live in newness of life, just as AK took a step in baptism and she was buried with Christ, Romans 6, and raised to walk in newness of life, that we would be a people more and more experiencing newness together. Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen.